This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. Hope everyone's doing well. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the presidential Simon Belanger. We are talking earnings news as per usual on the Thursday release. And we have actually some fun segments talking about return decomposition and why to stay invested. You know, among the volatility, the reasons to stay invested and the actual statistics around why you should stay invested. Um, Simon, did you watch the Super Bowl last night? Uh, yeah, well, Sunday, a couple nights ago, but definitely uh, I watched it up till oh, the yeah, <laughs> It is Tuesday. Yeah. I am in a time warp. Okay. Yep. Watched it until the fourth quarter. Then our baby girl started crying. So I had to attend to her, but uh, did my yearly $100 bet with my wife where we um, we split in three ways. We put 50 on the uh, Chiefs winning, just uh, the money line. Okay. So won that. Nice. Congrats I on the win. Put 25 on Patrick Mahomes winning the MVP. Won that. Okay. Two for three. And then the last one, uh, a funky bet. $25 on the Gatorade color, red. It was actually purple, I <laughs> think I saw. It was purple. One. Yeah, which paid like really good odds, the purple one. So. <laughs> purple is pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, you, I think the the number one, like most likely the favorites, like always the lime green. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, then, uh, and then orange. Uh, what is your favorite Gatorade color, by the way? Just uh, computer, just out of curiosity. I mean, I really, I can't remember the last time I had Gatorade. Usually, I get these <laughs> okay. uh, these little electrolyte kind of thingies, so um, little kind of discs you put in your water. That's what I'll usually do for hydration. But um, I wanted to mention though, for the betting, we use one of the sites right that's in Canada, and uh, it was what you were saying. If you did a one dollar bet. You got like $300 in free betting credits as long as you yeah. did a $1 bet. So now on top of we ended up making a bit of money, we have an extra $300 on top of it for betting. <laughs> it, that's just their cost of user acquisition, right? It's yeah. like, let's give you some ridiculous – like they always have this. This is their business model. It's like how can we get a customer in this extremely competitive space is like – just give them a freebie where they get hundreds of dollars in credit and hope that they get addicted. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Like, yeah. that's kind of the business model um, because, you know, a slim percentage of the gamblers on their site, like the whales, will make up like all of their top. It's like such a Pareto principle. Yeah. And so they're just hoping that you become one of those power users. Uh, unfortunately, it, it is what it is, right? Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's gambling. No, exactly. I'll probably forget about it. So uh, maybe I'll bet on like <laughs> who wins the Stanley Cup or something like that. Yeah. There you go. Uh, let's get into the news. Um, I guess just to go around, I was betting for the Eagles. Uh, I wasn't actually betting any money because I don't really do that. But I. Uh, I took that one. I took that L because I was all in on the Eagles. This is my last recording in beautiful Costa Rica. And uh, it's so funny. I'm watching the Super Bowl at this bar in Costa Rica. And all the commercials are for like Latin America. <laughs> so it's, they're putting on their best, like their best stuff. But 
all in Spanish and uh, for Latin American countries. It's so funny. So we got the uh, Super Bowl commercials, uh, Costa Rican edition, and some of them cracked me up, to be honest. No, that's funny. Well, yeah, so we've got some news. Let's get started. Uh, quick look at USCPI, which was released today. I'll keep it short. Um, I know we've talked about a lot about inflation. I mean, it's hard not to um, in the past couple of years. But the TLDR here is that it came in slightly more, slightly hotter than expected at 6.4% year over year and 0.5% month over month versus December. Most categories saw price increases month over month and year over year. With used vehicles being one of the exceptions here on both fronts, so declines both on the month-over-month and year-over-year basis. There's actually an interesting chart that you're seeing here, and I'll explain it to people. Fairly easy to understand. I pulled it from the uh, U.S. government uh, data from when they released a CPI. The chart starts in January of last year, so January 2022, all the way to now. So there's two lines, one for CPI, so the main inflation, the headline number that we see all the time, and one is the core CPI, which is all items, less food and energy, which is usually the metric that central banks will look at because food and energy are more volatile, so that's why they strip them out. Essentially, you see the trend peaking in June for regular CPI and September for core CPI and then trending down since. However, if you're looking at the chart and it's in the second or third page for anyone wanting to look at it, you'll see that there's a pretty sharp decline starting in September all the way till the end of 2022. But I don't know if it's going to continue like this, but it definitely looks like it's starting to level off a little bit right now. So um, I think the main thing to remember here at the risk of sounding like a central banker is that more data will be required. And just be careful with people saying one way or the other, whether, you know, they think inflation will just stay up super high or, you know, it's going to keep going down. The central banks will be cutting rates because it's going to go down too low and so on. The reality is, is that there still remains to, there still needs to be more data to make, a, you know, really a firm assessment one way or another. And how about the jobs report? What was that last week? Yeah, uh, for Canada that came in yeah. super high. Yeah, but those uh, for both. Yeah, U.S. and Canada. It was the U.S. number too, right? Yeah, those I always take with a grain of salt because they are notorious for being revised months after. Um, so that's always something I tell people, you know. Be careful because usually they get revised, whether it's up or down. But yeah, they came at way above expectations. And I think you'll see more volatility from the markets. It's been a pretty good start of the year right now. And I decided to pull some data, which I thought was pretty interesting about the S&P 500 so far this year. And the interesting thing is it's almost a complete reverse from last year in terms of the sectors that are doing well versus last year, those who were doing the worst. Now, communication services is up 16% as a sector after being down the most 38% last year. Consumer discretionary is up 16% after being down 35% last year. Tech is up 15% after being down 27%. And real estate is up 10% after also being down 27%. So it's just interesting because obviously it's small sample, just year to date versus full year last year. But it's interesting to see that it's almost like a an exact reversal of what happened. Obviously, the percentages are different, but the winners right now were the biggest losers last year. 
It's crazy. I mean, it, yeah, it's literally a complete reversal from yeah. from last year, and it, it goes back to you know reversion to the mean and reversion to the mean in terms of long term free cash flow growth of the underlying constituents inside of these indexes, and there are lots of great businesses are that are in sectors that absolutely stunk to own last year. Um, but if you focus, focus on the business fundamentals and every, thought everything was fine, maybe you accumulated more shares, that's when opportunities uh, form especially, right? And so you and I have kind of positioned the way we were loading up on adding to positions last year more so. Um, and look, I mean, there's always reversion to the mean in actual underlying business fundamentals of the constituents inside of these sectors. Yeah, and and that's why I like that kind of data, just because for me, it's always been if you have a sector that's massively down, you know, clearly, you know, there will be some underlying reasons. And clearly, there's probably some pretty poor businesses in that sector, too, that you should not touch with a 10 foot pole. But there's also going to be a list of dead bodies in that sector. Exactly. Exactly. But oftentimes, if you start digging, you'll also find some really good businesses that have been dragged down because they were part of that sector. And that's why I think it's a really good tool for people as a starting point if they're looking to find, you know, value value to different degrees because I think you can make a a case that tech is still somewhat richly valued depending on the businesses right now. But, you know, find some better value, I would say. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and this is why you remain invested. Um, I'm going to go through here some statistics around big days in the market and how much they account for returns over time. So this is data from 1992 to 2022. And here we are now in 23. And so many people got scared out of stocks last year. All right. So this is the S&P 500 index from 92 to 2022. And you had a compound annual growth rate of 7.82% in the market. And and again, this includes last year's bad results. Uh, If you missed the 10 best days, just 10 trading days, you would have had a 5% annual return. If you missed the 20 best days in the S&P, you had a 3.23%. Missed the best 30 days, you had a 1.68% annual return. Missed the best 40 days, you basically were flat at 0.3% return. You definitely lost to inflation. And you had actually a negative 1% annual return if you missed the best 50 days in the S&P 500 uh, if you just owned the index. So you know, in the past 30 days of the market being open and here in 2023, you've certainly wanted to be invested. Um, you've certainly wanted to be invested. And, and some of the days already this year, you were definitely happy to remain invested. And if you want to be long term, you can't really market time. Uh, if you're going to be in and out of stuff all the time, your returns will very likely suffer statistically. This is not just my opinion. This is statistics. According to JP Morgan's analysis, the best 10 days over the past 20 years occurred after big declines, like amid the 2008 financial crisis or the 2020 pullback during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. 
So when everyone scared out of it, when everyone was like, ah, you know, the world's ending, uh, you know, there's huge, huge crash, world's ending, stock market crash, sell stocks. Those were typically when the best 10 days occurred in the past 20 years during these extreme periods of volatility and really, really negative performance. You stripped those away and you didn't even make any money over the last 30 years. So the takeaway here is remain invested. And the the stats you were talking about last year in, in 2022, some people were just washed out. Some people capitulated. I don't, I don't think that many, but a lot of people did. And um, the math says, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Too long, didn't learn. Uh, the math says, do not do that. Yeah, and I, I I, think some people that got wiped out, I, obviously there's some people that may have gotten discouraged, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who just got scared and pulled money out of the market because, you know, might as well pull it out before it goes down even more. I think that's the reasoning that right. people have. And you also have 2022. I, I don't have the data. I wish I had. Uh, maybe it's something I can look for a segment at some point. But um, we looked at it a little bit actually with um, what was it? Interactive broker in terms of the margin, the mar- yeah. people trading on margin. I have a feeling a lot of people got wiped out in 2022 because of the downturn and not being sufficient, have sufficient capital to cover their margins. Yeah. As soon as you introduce leverage, I mean, this conversation entirely changes. Like you can, you can legit get wiped out like for real. What does Buffett say? The only way uh, to go broke, liquor, ladies, and leverage. So uh, (laughs) take, take that one seriously because it, it, it will legit uh, make a huge difference. And how many times has Buffett and famous, well-known investors talked about that over time? If you have a long horizon, why mess around with leverage in equities? It is not required. It is absolutely not required to be leveraged in equities if you have a long horizon or or any horizon. <laughs> many of the most famous investors have have been very uh vocal about that that you do not need leverage in equities to do well over time yeah i think it's just uh you know people wanting to get rich quick i think it comes down to that uh people not wanting to wait and you know leverage can go both ways yes if you make the right bets and the market cooperates i mean you can probably become you can become a millionaire in a matter of probably you know, a few weeks or months, um, but you can also lose everything. So that's something to to keep in mind. Whereas if you, you know, you hold good businesses for the long term, you'll have ups and downs. You know, clearly you will, but you don't really have to worry about them. You really have a long term horizon and the the outcome historically has been good for people to do that. And when you lever up returns on the downside, it hurts way, way more mathematically than on the upside. It's the same reason that you should never hold for a long period of time levered ETFs because you have return decay. And uh, look that up. If it's an unfamiliar topic, you have return decay and it is not good long term. Like the downside 3 x on an ETF mathematically hurts way more than upside on 3 x So something to keep in mind. Now we'll move on for some earnings. Uh, Pinterest 
I came out with their earnings. This is a name I like to keep on an eye on because I used to own it. The reason I sold was because revenues were growing. That was good, but there was a big red flag in my opinion. I gave it several quarters and didn't see any improvement. And that was the users were decreasing, which was being offset by higher average revenue per user or ARPU. That was fine, but at you know, it's almost the user base is like the foundation. And if your foundation is not good, it can really create some issues. And, you know, as much as I hate Zuckerberg and, you know, <laughs> the Zuckerberg, the Zuckerberg, the Zuck, <laughs> um, as much as I hate him, they have a good foundation. I have to give that to them. Uh, their user base either stays stable or increases a little bit. And, you know, Clearly, they have margin of error. It wouldn't be the end of the world, even if it decreased a bit because it's so massive. You you really don't like the Zuck. I've never heard you say hate with him. I, I mean, you've had your opinions about him, but I, that, that's the first time I've heard the H word come out. Yeah, I just... It just I mean, really rubs you the yeah, wrong way. I, yeah, you definitely... <laughs> and it's just some of the practices they've done in the past, and they seem to... Yeah, I just don't trust what he does. I'll just say that, yeah. Yeah, it, it is a good point, though, right? Because you're talking about the the active users here, and it's a big reason why the like meta stock popped so much on on earnings. It's like for the first time, daily active users hit an all time high of two billion. Twenty five percent of the global population was logging into a meta asset daily, and that was remaining resilient and actually reached a new peak among all of the negative pessimism around the stock. It's like, look, their assets are still at all time high usage. And and that really matters because ARPU is going to go up and down with ad rates and stuff like that. But it's you can't replicate usage and users. uh, And when that starts to crack, the, the fundamentals also crack with it, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. So back to Pinterest here. I uh, was their Q4 full year release. And my first impression was that it wasn't great. It was okay. Uh, but there's definitely some cracks that are starting to show here. Revenues grew 9% for the year, but only 4% for Q4. That's compared to 52% and 20% respectively for the year prior. Clearly a big deceleration here. Expenses were up 29% for the year, although this was to be expected. They had guided that in their 2022 guidance that the operating expenses alone would be up 40%. Net loss of $96 million versus net income of $316 million the prior year. Free cash flow was down 41% to $440 million. Global monthly active users were up 4%, which is good. This is something you want to see if you own shares or you, you're interested in the company. However, and this is where it gets not so good, U.S. and Canada, which is by far the most profitable market for their ARPU, the average revenue per user, the monthly active users were flat year over year and on a sequential basis when you look at the quarters. So it's not decreasing, but it's not increasing. Uh, so that's, you know, it's not great there. Europe MEUs were up 2% year over year, slightly more than that on a sequential basis, which is their second most profitable market, way behind uh, US and Canada. And then the re- rest of the world MEUs were up 8%. So 
obviously there is some good there but to put things in context here and why it's a bit alarming for us and canada specifically but also europe is that arpu for us canada was up 16 percent for the year to 24.38 but was flat in q4 so this is you know there's there's definitely some red flags happening here arpu for europe was up was 7%. that flat q4 over q4 or sequential yeah. uh i believe that was sequential yeah my bad i didn't put it but i'm pretty sure that was sequential yeah yeah i, I right think, so you basically yeah. had no growth in the entire fourth quarter on on actives yeah okay yeah it makes sense exactly and Kind of same kind of thing for Europe. Europe was up 7% for the year to $3.23. So you can see the big difference in terms of profitability for their users. So it's about eight times higher US Canada compared to Europe. And it was down 9% in Q4. Again, I'm pretty sure it's on a sequential basis. My uh, my apologies here. I should have put that into note. Our poo for the rest of the world was up 49% for the year to 43 cents. So that's the issue here is that the rest of the world, although it is impressive, um, the base is really low. So the percentage may look good, but I don't know how much leeway, you know, maybe they'll get to their Europe levels at some point. Who knows? But uh, the increase started slowing down in Q4 again on the sequential basis. So I'm definitely seeing this. I mean, the good side is the users seem, seem to be stabilizing. If you own a position here, definitely keep an eye on that. But the bad side is that the monetization seems to start to uh, it looks like it's starting to plateau a little bit. Yeah, definitely, definitely plateauing. Twenty four thirty eight ARPU for U.S. and Canada. That seems so solid. It, the the difference. It's for crazy. Yeah. Rest of the world, forty three cents for outside of Europe, U.S. and Canada. Like they're hardly monetizing it at all. Even Europe. I mean, it's not. <laughs> it's just yeah, three dollars twenty three cents. Yeah. That's not great. The discrepancy is just crazy when you look at the different regions. So. Yeah, I think it's just a reminder for people, if you own these type of companies, uh, oftentimes even like a meta, their average revenue per user will vary greatly depending on the region. So just looking at the global MAUs, for example, doesn't really tell you anything. You have to really dig in a little further to know what direction they're going in. And look at the breakdown between month, if they disclose it, if they disclose it, great. Monthly actives versus weekly actives versus daily actives because that will massively affect monetization in the area. The more people are using it more frequently, you're going to have a higher ARPU because they're, they're getting served up more ads. Their eyeballs are being monetized more. So if you can find that breakdown, do it. Uh, and obviously, the more people that are daily uh, versus just monthly – it's obviously a very telling sign, and and of course, Meta is the 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 golden standard here. Yeah, hey, gotta gotta give him, uh, gotta give the king his uh, his due or whatever, <laughs> King Zuck, King Zuckerberg. All right, let's talk about Intuitive Surgical uh, ticker ISRG uh, on in the U.S. listed stock. Uh, I'll start with as a shareholder, I had. M- kind of some mixed feelings about the 2022 results. The fundamentals are strong. Uh, they're definitely the leader in the space and, and getting lots of Da Vinci robotic assisted surgery systems installed. 
but this is not a cheap stock by any stretch and really hasn't ever been. And so when you're, when I own something that's this high of a multiple, I kind of have expectations for growth and how long it can be sustained. And I really thought the post COVID surgery boost would be a really monster year for them. They posted top line revenues of only 9%. Here's another thing I don't love. That was not called out in the top of the press release. Like it usually is, right? Yeah. <laughs> like how often do we talk about that? Um, and so single digit growth for, you know, something trading at like 70 times earnings is, is, is not, not great. But what I have been very consistent about every time I talk about this business is that I don't expect it to be some hyper growth, 50% top line, 50% on all the KPIs year over year. I've always been very consistent about saying it can be a double digit grower for a really, really long time because it has a really long runway for growth. So maybe it's not some hyperscaler now, but it can really sustain some of these double digit growth. And so when I see it coming at 9%, I'm like that, you know, we're still early in what I believe is this story and seeing some kind of like softness in the growth trajectory. And so I'll be the first to be critical about a uh, position I own. And so I'll talk more about the reacceler- reaccelerating growth and, and some of the bright spots now, but there are certainly many bright spots. Recurring revenue continues to grow double digits at 15%. There's seven and a half thousand installed DaVinci's now, which is their flagship robotic assisted surgery system. That's up 12%. So again, seven and a half thousand of these installed uh, across the world is is no, no joke. These are very intense technology. It's, you know, very sticky. Once the surgeons are using it, they're, they're sticking with it. Um, almost 1.9 million surgeries were performed in the year, which was up 17.6%, which I believe is you know, such an important metric for them, especially kind of coming back off of 2020, having such a slowdown in uh, in the hospitals. They have nearly $7 billion in cash on the balance sheet. Uh, competition is starting to heat up as expected. Um, you know, they weren't going to own this space kind of forever. There's now like, so there's a list of now formidable competitors, but they're still quite a far a ways back. And there's so many adjacent surgeries that they can all kind of go for. So they don't have to all compete for the same, you know, three surgeries. They bought back $1 billion in stock just in the fourth quarter alone, which is about what they generated in free cash flow. Uh, the growth probably needs to accelerate or the multiple will keep coming down. That's kind of the, it's kind of like my, the bearish case here on the stock is, there needs to be some sort of acceleration on the top line. You know, you're seeing that in the surgeries, you're seeing that in the recurring revenue. It's, they had a bit of a soft year in installed Da Vinci's. So that probably needs to come back. And it was a little elevated off 2021. So it was a hard comp, but that's no excuse when you're trading at 15 times sales and, and, uh, you know, 70 times earnings, you're priced for perfection. And so that's kind of the the bearish case on the stock here now is they got to basically demonstrate something or the the multiple comes down quite significantly. And if it does, then maybe it's an interesting buy there as well. But that is something to keep in mind if you have this one on your radar is uh, a lot of things need to go right for this multiple to be sustained. Um, And chances are it doesn't, to to be completely honest with, with myself. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I was looking at uh, just, I was just interesting. I was, I pulled them up on uh, Stratosphere and didn't realize, I guess they uh, don't have any death, huh? Nope, nope, net cash. The balance sheet is like one of the best balance sheets in like mid cap world. And uh, actually, this is not a mid cap, it's definitely a large cap, but I just mean like not mid cap world. Yeah, I think they have 1.5 billion on cash. So uh, pretty good, pretty good uh, cash position. More. That's what Way I more. thought. Uh, anyways, yeah, really? That was one seven billion, roughly. Oh, okay. I think you're looking at the. Anyways, I'm not sure what you're looking at. Yeah, um, me neither. <laughs> no, <laughs> I thought I saw. Maybe it didn't include. It but was I just pulled cash, all yeah. of this data. Every single KPI I just talked oh, about. Oh yeah. I actually, I actually just pulled it right from Stratosphere. So I didn't even look at their report. I just looked at the press release quickly. But I wanted to do this entirely just from the KPIs that I think matter which is, you know, recurring revenues, installed Da Vinci's, installed base, uh, surgeries performed, the balance sheet, um, and buybacks. So, yeah, this is, this is no, basically they, where I'm feeling here. It's such a, such a wonderful business, but... You're right, the cash is uh, 6.7 because uh, it had separate yeah. lines for, you know, short-term investments, which are cash equivalent, right. but it, what threw me off was the cash and cash equivalents, and then I broke it down. But um, no, you're right. It was 6.7. Okay. That's right. Okay, sounds good. So now I'll move on to a company that, uh, speaking of bearish, it was, would be on one right here. So Canopy Growth, Q3 2023. So... Let's just start with the first paragraph of their earnings release, and I think that'll tell you a lot what you need to know and where they're going. Net revenue of $101 million in Q3, uh, fiscal year 2023, declined 28% versus Q3 of 2022. The decrease is primarily attributable to increased competition in the Canadian adult use cannabis market, the divestiture of C3 and their Canadian retail business, a decline in our U.S. CBD business and softer performance from Storts and Bickles and this works. So when adjusting for the impact of the divestitures, revenues only decreased 23%. So that tells you everything you need to know there is that, okay, sure, yeah, there's things that are, you know, one-time thing. Obviously, they sold a business. Clearly, you have to account for that. When you do account it, it still looks terrible. So I think that gives you a good idea on how it is. Now, even BioSteel, which was one of their bright spot, um, was down 4% year over year. They announced that they will be reducing their workforce by 60% across the business, including 800 positions immediately as they are closing a facility in Smiths Falls, which is not far from Ottawa. And I do feel for those people. I know the community is reeling over there because it was a pretty large employer for, for the city. It's not a large town. On the positive side, and there's not much positive here, gross margins are now positive versus negative margins last year. The free cash burn decreased by 13%, but they still burn $146 million in the quarter. And at this point, I really don't know where they will be one year from now. And this was one of the major players. I guess it still is. They still have close to $700 million in cash and cash equivalents, but they also have $1.2 billion in long-term debt with $455 due uh, this year. So it's it looks dicey here. And the last thing I'll say is, Look, Constellation Brands, for those who are not familiar with them, they own like Corona amongst, uh, Corona Beer amongst other brands. So they have a pretty significant investment in Canopy. I just don't know if at some point they just say, you know what, 
or letting it ride. If you can't make it work with uh, what you have right now, we're ready to just write off this whole investment. Um, I I feel like that may... I don't know. I'm just kind of guessing at this point, but I just don't see them putting more money in, in Canopy. Maybe they will. Uh, maybe they have a, a bigger overarching strategic plan using the knowledge or the assets for something else. But uh, yeah, it, it just doesn't look good. And this seems to be the case for... Pretty much every cannabis play right now. Yeah, and a good point about Constellation brands. Uh, not to be confused with Constellation software. Constellation brands, the, the Corona, uh, Modelo brand. They, yeah, good luck convincing shareholders to put to burn, incinerate more money here. What their total investments north of five billion USD, I, I believe. Um, yeah, it was something so that like is that. not a. That is not a small figure, which they continue to write down every single quarter. Uh, and I mean, they had warrants yeah. for, I think it was something like $50 a share, or I don't know. It was around that yeah, range. Yeah. And, you know, to give people an idea, in Canadian dollars right now, it's $3 a share. Yeah, so those, those warrants are not <laughs> looking great. Good thing we got warrants at yeah. 50 Yeah, exactly. Jeez. Oh, that's a tough... Uh, Tough pill to swallow, and uh, I mean, many of these companies will need a lifeline, and who's giving it to? I mean, just there, the unit economics yeah. are just so unpromising. There That's will. The problem. I think two in the next yeah. two years, I would say you're gonna see someone come in, whether it's you know a, a a large private investor, whatever it is, someone is gonna take advantage of this market. They're going to consolidate totally. and they're going to yeah. be the major player in the field because the reality is there is money to be made. It's just, you know, it yeah. needs consolidation and someone is going to come in, buy some assets on the cheap and make a pretty good business out of it because they won't have overpaid. Uh, the margins might not be the best, but they'll probably have a good chunk of the market. So they probably will be able to play with those margins. So that's my prediction. I mean, let's say a, a bold couple year prediction is you're going to see in the next two years some massive consolidation. And I think it's going to come out of left field. You're going to see a player just come in like, yeah, either private equity or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably it's probably a pretty good prediction. And there is opportunity. It's just that all of these businesses came out of the woodwork, all went public, and never right-sized their cost structure because they came right into a time of cheap money, land and expand, build as much capacity for growth, pun intended, growth um, of, of cannabis – and never once right-sized the cost structure, or never once were told to right-size the cost structure because it didn't matter. Um, and so maybe there's an opportunity there, but they're just not set up to have to pivot so hard to making money. It's uh, yeah. Someone's yeah. going to have to come in with a completely different methodology. Yeah, they're going to be efficient. That's what's going to happen. They're going to buy assets on the cheap and it's going to be efficient. They're probably going to end up producing a, a good product. Uh, it's just going to be the opposite of what these businesses did. They used their high stock price. We're talking about the $50 for Canopy, but it went higher than that. I mean, they were doing acquisitions and just saying, okay, we'll pay you like... 
you know, part cash and with shares because our shares are sky high right now. Um, so you yeah. saw massive dilution and they just overbuilt and now they have to downside massively. But uh, yeah, I still think there is a, a, a good business there, but it has to be well managed. And I think that was the issue is they did not manage it well. They It was horribly managed by these companies. Horribly. Yeah. And it, and all of them, yeah. Yeah. All of them. I mean, like pretty much all of them. Can you imagine uh, if a player, right, actually last thing is, if there was a company that started smaller, did very everything very conservatively, that company may be the dominant player right now if there would have been one outlier and people laughing at them because they're not investing enough. And then now, you know, they just kept their cash, right-sized everything, grew slowly they'd be probably like scooping up some assets right now. It's the same in tech uh, for the companies that went crazy, venture capital infused, cost structure, never right-sized. You have some of these smaller like bootstrapped or like very conservatively managed businesses taking advantage. Um, And maybe there is a uh, collection of bootstrapped type of companies in this space. I just think that they're mostly all drug dealers and not <laughs> <laughs> set up to uh, take advantage of this in a very corporate way. Uh, but who? what do I know? I'm sure there's lots of wonderful entrepreneurs out there uh, in, <laughs> in this space. Uh, let's talk Brookfield. It is Brookfield time. We, I'm going to talk about Brookfield Corp and Brookfield Asset Management. You're going to talk about infrastructure uh, as if it wasn't complicated enough. Simo, we now have yet another listing to discuss, but it gives us some additional disclosures now that Brookfield has spun out the asset management business, which has low key gone up 30% since every shareholder, including myself was like, Hey, this math ain't mathing in the first week of the spinoff. Let's start with the asset management spinoff, which, you know, is BAM itself. Now the ticker BAM Brookfield asset management and is owned by ticker BN, Brookfield Corp. I know we've gone over this several times. I know many of you know, but just to kind of reiterate that, BN owns 75% of BAM. Um, And BAM, you know, their first letter to shareholders said, welcome to the new BAM, a pure play on our asset manager. And this was really the goal, right? It It was to kind of give investors an ability to own the pure play asset management business and as well unlock some value by disclosing the the numbers specifically of the asset management business under its own listing. And so they have a couple bullet points they put here. Uh, one, we invest in the backbone of the global economy. Number two, we leverage our deep operational expertise to create value. You and I have talked about this extensively. They're not only an asset manager, but they're a operational expert of said assets. Very unique relationship. It's not very common. Uh, number three, our scale and track record over a long period of time means we're a beneficiary of the capital that is increasingly gravitating to the largest multi, multi-asset class managers in period of industry consolidation. I'm not going to lie. That was way too much jargon, Bruce <laughs> Flat. Uh, give it to me. Give it to me like I'm five. That was that was a lot. Um, our business is positioned around the leading secular global drivers of capital across renewable power, 
energy transition, infrastructure, real estate, and credit. We're highly diversified. And uh, across Bookfield, we have $175 billion of our own discretionary permanent capital to invest with in our funds. Uh, and so, yeah, it's an interesting little breakdown. They raised a record $93 billion of capital in 2022, bringing their fee-bearing capital to $418 billion. So simply put, they have $418 billion that they manage and collect management fees on. That's their business. They're an asset manager. People give them their money so that Brookfield can invest it on their behalf in their funds and operations um, and they have 418 billion of it collecting fees, which is a leading indicator for fee related earnings to come in the future. Um, but even backwards looking, fee related earnings grew 26% in 2022, uh, to $2.1 billion at a net 58% profit margin. Like, how is that for a business you own? It's growing fast. It has nearly 60% net margins. It is very sticky because they're managing permanent capital. Like it's software-like, but with sixty percent net margins um, and growing fast. Like this is like Brookfield is a growth stock, dude. Like how often do I have to get this through people's head? This is a freaking growth stock. The numbers are incredible. Looking at the big picture here, total assets under management for Brookfield Corp is now eight hundred billion, up sixteen percent. Distributable earnings of 5.2 billion, which was actually down 15%, but it, it fluctuates a lot on distributable earnings. And this number has grown at a compound annual growth rate of 22% over the past 10 years. I pulled a quote here from Mr. Flat. Over the next five years, we plan to grow our free cash flow at a compound annual growth rate of 25%, which should generate about 35, no, about 30 billion in excess cash flow during that period to just our corporation's balance sheet. I mean, what's not to like here? And it still trades at like pretty decent valuation. You got like six billion in free cash flow on a 65-ish billion dollar market cap company growing extremely fast. Like what's what's there not to like here? I mean, I'm I'm really glad I upped my position when it looked ugly late last year. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of funny looking because I, I guess Brookfield, you can kind of compare them a little bit to Blackstone because they're both yep. asset managers, right? And Alternative asset managers, most importantly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think Blackstone has slightly under a trillion of assets under management and the company and Blackstone is quite complex to understand as well. But I think they're 116 billion market cap. Yeah. And you have Brookfield in USD. That's like pretty much half of that, almost exactly half. So it's an interesting it's interesting to see the discrepancy there when Brookfield also almost has 800 uh, billion of assets under management. So I don't know, you know, there might be underlying reasons for that. But uh, I was just kind of, as you were talking, I was like, oh, just interested in comparing the two quickly like that. It's very surface and, level. And, no, but that surface level is exactly what derived them wanting to spin out the asset manager. They're coming for that Blackstone multiple. You know, like in terms of unlocking value, that's exactly like a simplified version, but it is the real version that Flat and Co. are coming to try to unlock value by spinning this thing out. Is because exactly what you said. Look at the Blackstone comp; it's it's night and day. 
Yeah, and it's, I don't know if it's the Canadian factor, like, I just don't know, because Blackstone, I guess it's well known in the US, and I know Brookfield's double dual listed, and I think pretty much all their subsidiaries are as well, um, yeah. but I don't know, I feel like it's just maybe... It's not People as well People get known. turned off by how complicated the structure yeah, is. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's not like Blattstone is that easy to understand either. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's not. Um, no, I actually emailed uh, Investor Relations today for, for Brookfield. And I said, hey, I, 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 I keep to date, up to date, like just all of the asset managers, uh, sorry, all of the mothership's ownership stakes and all of the subsidiaries can you confirm this is correct? And I just put the number for each one. And I'm like 99% sure it's correct, but uh, they're going to get back to me. I, they answer my emails. So okay, that's good. a little like, yeah. that's a little tip for you guys. No matter if you own one share or you know $10 billion worth of the business, so you can email the investor relations and you will be surprised how often it is the CFO, CEO, or le- head of the investor relations we're there to answer your questions. Like their job is to answer to shareholders. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you own one share or 10 million of them. And at the end of the um, day, they don't know, right? You could be a pretty significant shareholder just using a random email because you don't you yeah. want to see what they're going to answer, right? So they, they have to approach it. You know, the good companies just have to approach it and answer you the same way they would answer if they knew you had, you know, a $20 million stake in the company, for example. Yeah, and I'm asking a legit question like, okay, here are all the subsidiaries. This is what what I think all, all the ownership stake is. Can you just confirm it's right or just, you know, redline which number's wrong and, and let me know? And it's a completely legitimate question and they usually get back to you within yeah. like two, three business days depending on the company. So just a pro tip, you know, don't feel like you're too small of a fish to email or try to talk to the management team. Um, I feel like most retail investors are feel like they're too small of a fish in the pond to to reach out don't feel that way because oftentimes their their mandate is to answer to shareholders regardless of size yeah no exactly and now on the brookfield theme we'll finish it here probably my favorite subsidiary i mean i do like i know you love the asset management side but i love the infrastructure part of the business just because it's such a necessity and it's very resilient regardless of how the economy is doing and you'll see it with the results here so funds from operation so ffo is what they they use because it strips out a bunch of different things that don't really impact the business was up 20 percent to 2.1 billion dollars the ffo breakdown per segment here utilities was up five percent transport up 13 percent midstream was up 51 percent however i've mentioned this before but keep in mind it may look impressive but this has in big part to do with the acquisition of Interpipeline that closed in late October 2021. So most of 2021 did not have that extra revenue, but clearly um, they also had an organic increase as well. Data was essentially flat, the data segment. Uh, this is mainly due to currency exchange headwinds. Data segment would be their data centers that they own. And that's why I like uh, this the infrastructure play because it, you know, you don't you don't even need to invest in a pipeline. Basically, you have it. They have a pretty good chunk of their revenue coming from the midstream, which would be pipelines here. Um, they deployed five billion into new assets in 2021 and 2022. They continued their 
capital recycling strategy as well, selling their Indian Toll Road portfolio and their stake in a free old landlord port in Victoria, Australia. Uh, capital recycling just means that Brookfield tends to buy assets on the cheap. They you know, prop them up or, you know, make them more efficient. I think that's a better word to use. And then they either decide to keep them for the long run or they decide to sell them when they're highly valued. That's where the recycling comes in. So they they do that actually quite well. They will buy assets. I mean, the interpipeline's a perfect example. Go back and look at the prices of either oil stocks or pipeline companies in mid-late 2021. Um, they, they were not what they are today. I'll just say that. And Brookfield is, is the best at doing that kind of stuff. They kind of identify certain assets that they see tremendous value and they turn them around. And like I said, keep them either for the long term or sell them at a profit and then reinvest that money into new assets that they think are undervalued. And they have a really good track record. They said that they are at the advanced stages of their next round of asset sale, which they believe should generate another $2 billion in net proceeds. There is significant interest because of the current economic environment. So I'm assuming these are probably assets that potential suitors can have a decent amount of, let's say, profitability certainty, maybe a type of assets that are indexed with the cost of living, for example. And the last thing I'll mention for you dividend lovers, it already pays a pretty decent yield, but they were true to themselves and increased their dividend by 6%, which is within their 5 to 9% dividend increase range uh, that they target for every year. Yeah, good overview. And this is... This is why it's just so easy to own the corp because you're going to get exposure to this. You're going to get exposure to the the real estate portfolio and you're going to get exposure to the renewal portfolio on top of the asset manager. And that's why I like it to own it so much too, because all of all the reasons you just said, like this is also a really good business to own. Um, and infrastructure is Lindy in the fact that, you know, it's not going away. If it's going away, humans have a bigger problem than uh, than your your investment portfolio. Because, like I said, in the first uh, you know mandate of what they do is we invest and operate in assets which make up the backbone of the global economy. It's, it's true. Look at the like toll roads, uh, you know, midstream and utilities. Like these are core core assets, and globally too. Yeah, yeah, and one thing I uh, renewable partners also reported not too long ago. I wasn't gonna do them, but one quick note, um, you know, just I I didn't prepare this, so just something I've been thinking about is I'm actually thinking about re- trimming my renewable partner stake and reinvesting the proceeds uh, most likely in the uh, corporation. And yep. keeping the infrastructure as is because it's not as big of a position. It's just it's become quite large, a renewable stake. Uh, so I want to trim that down, just dial that down a little bit. And then it gives me more exposure, broader exposure to the the whole business by doing the corporation. The infrastructure one, I actually added to it in uh, around the same time you added to the corp. So it was uh, quite low in uh, December. It just felt like a good opportunity to add to my position there. Yeah, good point. And what's the yield on uh, the spin out now? 
It's like uh Did they announce and they must have announced the payout. Yeah. Uh let me see here. Yeah. Yeah, it's a three and a half percent yield. Which is not bad. Yeah, for something growing like that and you know, expects to grow free cash flow at twenty five percent a year. I mean look, if management team says that, usually I'm like, that sounds aggressive. But when Bruce Flat says it, like you know, like the he can say what he wants. He's done it long enough, right? It's like some people just have the track record to do. It's like sports. Like if some, you know, rookie comes out and says, I'm going to, you know, be the best ever and hasn't done anything and prove anything in the big leagues compared to, you know, a, a, a literally a hall of fame, a first ballot hall of famer. They're able to back up the statements by, you know, past performance. And so uh, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm holding value to him saying those kinds of things. Um, but of course, you and I are shareholders, full disclosure of some of the yeah. subsidiaries, oh, yeah. the Brookfield. Uh, we are obviously very bullish on the company, but do your own research because it's a very complicated structure. Yeah. This, is not, this is not an easy business to understand. It is very diversified, which is which is nice, but that comes with complications of trying to understand all of the inputs. So make sure you do your own research. Obviously, we sound extremely bullish on this because we like the results. I, st- I still think the cheap the, the stock is relatively cheap, um, but of course, do your own and work. They also have some legendary figures. I mean, well, legendary, some very well regarded figures working for them. So Mark Carney the former Bank of Canada governor and also the Bank of England governor is uh, part of their Brookfield Asset Management team. Uh, you also have Howard Marks, who Howard was, Marks. was part of the, well, when Brookfield acquired uh, controlling stake in Oak Tree Capital Management. So they have people. So, you know, if you're wondering, okay, how will Brookfield navigate these higher rates? For example, they do have a decent amount of debt. Well, they also have people that are, you know, pretty qualified at navigating these uh, different market cycles. So I think that's something to me that I find very re- reassuring as a shareholder. And also most of their debt, when you look at it, it may sound big, but a lot of their debt is just uh, backed by assets. So it's secured debt. So that's important. They don't, a lot of the businesses that people will look at, oftentimes you'll see debt on the balance sheet, but it's unsecured. So for Brookfield, the vast majority of it is secured debt. And a lot of it is also, you know, fixed rates. So it comes, you know, for several years, it won't be changing. And not of that, you know, majority as like variable rates, for example, we, that's something that can be alarming if you're looking at different corporations. Not to mention how much of those insiders own of Brookfield. It, it, it actually is quite staggering how much insiders own of the business, like all the execs, not to mention Bruce, um, Marks. There is sig- c- very significant insider ownership, which is always nice to see uh, with long-term performance, is that you have the management team aligned with shareholders. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. This was a regular Thursday release of the podcast. We are here twice a week with you. Thank you so much for a lot of the new listeners this year in uh, in 2023. The pod is doing better than ever. 
And that is all because of you. And it can continue to grow if you just share with a friend. If, if it has gotten one useful tidbit, one useful tidbit uh, from the show, we wouldn't mind if you, you shared it with a friend, you know, a, a buddy, a pal, a family member. Whatever it is, uh, you know, send them the old link on the podcast. Someone player. on the street, yeah. someone you cross on the someone street. Someone on the street. Yeah. yeah, someone on the street, you know, it could be could be a new pickup line. You know, you see someone that's very good looking on the side of the street, strike up a conversation. Have you heard of the Canadian Investor Podcast? And they're going to say, yes. Why, well, yes, I have. You also listen? Boom. There you go. You're in. You just you're in. You got a date right there. Uh, no, but seriously, thanks for listening so much. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.